Welcome to the podcast, guys. Uh, today I've got my friend Chris Rowe of Rowe Hunting Resources. Chris, how you doing? I'm <laughs> doing all right. How are you, my friend? You, you're, you're, from watching your Instagram, it seems like you're a one-legged duck swimming in a circle. Just going Man. like crazy. I would love to be swimming in a circle. At this point, I feel like I'm bobbing up and down under the water, just trying to keep my nose above it. Yeah. Jeez, oh, Pete. No, it's, it's finally starting to slow down. Back there? Uh, yeah, no, we just, we literally got some rain this morning, but yeah, it's been brutal. We've had a uh, major dry spell, just hot and dry, just brutal hot and dry. So we finally, fingers crossed, Lord willing, that cycle is broke because it's supposed to be in the 80s uh, this whole next week with some chances of rain. So, fingers crossed that continues. You know, it's been crazy. Um, I'm here in Colorado, but a lot of my buddies are back in AZ, and Craig Steele posted uh, something on his Instagram saying it was uh, one of the worst monsoons or the worst monsoons from June 15th on in a long time, and only 1.02 inches of rain recorded in Flagstaff. Yeah, no, that's that's about across the board from what I'm hearing as well. We've yeah, it's just been brutal for us. But then again, we kind of thought, you know, I think you and I talked about this at the beginning. You know, last from all last October right on through June here it was just wet, 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 wet. I mean, last fall, the farmers couldn't get in their fields to harvest. They couldn't plant. Then the spring, they couldn't get out to plant. And then they had trouble getting in the fields to harvest. But we all talked about the fact that at some point when this breaks, she's going to break hard and that pendulum's going to swing hard the other way. And that is exactly what happened. Yeah, you know, um, I'm looking at the slide now that Craig posted up. It says, driest monsoon seasons to date. Uh, June 15th to August 20th, so, you know, about a 35-day period there. In Flagstaff, it's listing 2019 with 1.02 inches of rain as number one. Number two is 1960 at 1.32, 2009 at 1.70, 1978 is 1.78, and 1997 is 1.89. So, you know, what's crazy is we come off in, in Arizona, and I know you're going to be in Arizona this fall as well as Colorado, but um, you know, we come off great winter moisture, good spring. I was just, you know, wanting, I was a little, I'm a little bit of a pig wanting just big monsoons to see, you know, how it would affect the animals over the next couple years. Um, but antler growth seems to be good in Arizona, but it'll just be interesting to see as dry as it is, you know, how that's going to affect the rut, you know, the hunt coming up for elk for sure. What are, what are your thoughts? Well, in my opinion, and this would be very interesting to see when we get down there, unless Craig has talked about it, I, I'm very curious to see what the grass is doing. As you know, down there you've got your cool season, some of your cool season grasses, but most of that that you have down there are warm season grasses. That blue grama grass, that grows during the summer. It wants that summer moisture, and it really relies on that monsoon moisture. Now, if, if there's been enough soil moisture in there to where it's kind of carried it through, then there might be some good vegetation production, but... I don't think we're going to see much of an impact on this year's rut. However, the question I have, and I talked about this in, in one of my latest videos on the website, is, listen, a lot of what people see in the, say, for spring, you know, spring antler growth, you know, everybody talks about whether the fronts are good or the tops are good or blah, 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 but 
your initial growth of antler production is largely dependent on what, how much food those animals had in the fall, in the previous fall, in, the previous, in, in that previous winter. How much food did they have going through the fall and winter prior to that spring? And so that's one thing that I think helped this particular antler growth this year is there was some good food on the landscape last fall for those animals going into the winter. The question is, is how are we looking for 2020 if it's been this dry and we just don't get a lot of uh, vegetative production, especially down there where you have a lot of cattle grazing, which you're going to have cattle coming in and taking off the biomass as well. So that's going to be the real, I, I think the rut's going to be fine this year. I'm curious about what next year's going to look like. Yeah, for sure. You know, it leads me to another kind of question slash statement. Um, I know you've been over and, and visited me at the Otfix Ranch uh, last year. You know, obviously very, very mild, very, very dry winter, not a lot of snow. Um, and surprisingly, we had pretty darn good antler growth um, at the ranch. And, uh, you know, then a big, big winter there, you know, a lot of snow. I have been running trail cameras, um, you know, for the last couple of years, a bunch of trail cameras, over 100. And, you know, one of the things that I'm noticing is I, I'm not 100% sure that our antler growth isn't pretty much the same. In other words, well, let me back up. I think our Colorado bulls are about two weeks behind from my buddy's cameras and what they're seeing in Arizona as far as I think our bulls in Colorado after this big winter, I maybe think that they didn't drop their antlers uh, right away. I think they maybe didn't start growing. I think that, you know, there was no real green up because it was still so cold. It'll be interesting if that loss of time frame is going to translate into the antlers being either the same or maybe just, you know, maybe slightly better than last year. But I'm just curious your thoughts on if animals don't go into uh, spring on green grass and have ready, available, good green feed, and they do get behind, do you think it's a function of, do their antlers harden at exactly the same time, or do they know that they need a little bit more growth and, you know, we'll see 8 or 10 or, you know, 14 days more growth, and then all of a sudden they'll harden up and, you know, they're rubbing right now type of thing? Um, what are your thoughts on that whole just, I know that's a lot to take in, but what are your thoughts on that? Uh, I did two talks on that as well, uh, or two videos on that as well, kind of. And, and to the answer to your question, I, I'm not 100% sure. And, and the reason why I say that is antler cycling is largely driven by hormone cycling, but it can be affected by conditions on the landscape. So, well, let me rephrase that. It is driven by hormone cycling, which is driven by photo period, but it can also be affected by, you know, things that either A, affect the lingering of their uh, hormones in the fall and or body condition and stress on, on their body. So if they went into fall, it, well, let me, let me just rephrase that. If they went through winter and they got into early spring and their body condition was suppressed, they are going to, even though they may cycle hormones 
you know, their hormone cycling may be normal, if they have to dig themselves out of a, a, a body condition hole, so to speak, then, yeah, their antler production will be delayed. Now, the question that you asked and that I'm not 100% sure on is, can they basically shift that window? So say, for instance, a mature bull can, you know, if we're looking at an eight-year-old bull, say, because you're dealing with odd six and we're talking about whether we're talking about, it doesn't matter. Let's just say an eight-year-old bull, a mature bull. Roughly, he can grow antlers about 145, maybe 150 days or so. He's got a window that he has the ability to grow. The question you ask is, if he gets a late start, can he shift that 150-day window to accommodate? Or does that 150-day window, is that fixed based on hormones and a, a deficit in the beginning? is just, well, suck it up. You just, you know, he's going to be done when he's going to be done. I think right. there's a little bit of both of that because I have seen in some years where antlers are that where bulls are shedding velvet by mid to late July, whereas this year, and quite honestly, to be perfectly honest, this is one I'll own. I I kind of predicted for Colorado. I thought for sure we were going to start seeing pictures of people posting. Uh, or po- people posting pictures of bulls stripping velvet by the end of July. I really did, and it, that hasn't happened. It seems like a lot of the the bulk of the velvet stripping has been going on recently, which is kind of a little bit, and you said it, about a couple weeks maybe behind schedule. So right. I guess my opinion would be is maybe there's a little bit of both of that going on. Maybe if the conditions aren't quite right, they can they can their body condition will shift that a little bit. But it is kind of largely driven by hormones. So, yeah, I mean, I was there on the twelfth checking. Got you know, hundred. I checked like 120 cameras, I think, and there was one bull. So I was there on August twelfth. And there was one bull that I saw on the camera that was rubbed, and that was August 11th. He had velvet hanging. So I know crazy. I've been there, you know, nine days ago. I know over the last nine days, and I've even heard from some of the guys at the ranch that they've been seeing bulls around that have rubbed. So the interesting thing is people keep asking me about antler growth, and I'm telling them I don't quite know yet because – I felt like a lot of the bulls that maybe I had their photo on, you know, August 1st or, you know, the last few days of July, normally I would say those bulls are done, and certainly in Arizona those bulls would be done. But I'm not so sure that if you get what I'm saying, I you know, yeah. you don't have bulls where you get photos every day of them. But let's say I got a bull on August 1st. Some of them looked like they were balled up and still had quite a bit of growth to go. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, when I go back here um, uh, in about 10 days and check what's happened over the last couple weeks, if that bull from, say, his photo taken, you know, on August 1st till, you know, let's say I get a photo of him on the 25th, in that time frame, he's obviously stripped his velvet, but how much has he actually grown? I'm speculating yeah. that I'm actually going to be kind of surprised, and I hope I'm surprised that uh, some of these bulls put on a lot more than I thought they would in that couple-week period. 
Well, and and they may be you very well may be right. And if I can take a minute to correct, not correct myself, but look my as my brain kind of snowballed. You know, if you if we talk about you know I had that we discussion that rethinking the rut about cow cycling and and hormones and body condition and all that. I guess if if body suppressed body condition can delay hormone cycling in cows, why wouldn't it? Why couldn't it delay? hormone cycling in bulls to where maybe that is in case some of that the factor there to where maybe they're if if a bull had a suppressed body condition coming into the spring maybe that hormone cycling was just a little delayed a little bit and so his entire growth window shifted uh that you know small amount of time you know a week or two weeks just to make up for you know that body condition regain because you're absolutely right i mean i like i said i thought for sure we were going to have bulls stripping at the end of july and that just uh, did not seem to happen um but then again i you know we were how and and the thing that kicked off my discussion on on the website was that there were a pile of people starting to post you know because it's end of july people get antsy they they went out you know july 4th weekend put up game cameras and then start getting antsy and so they go run back up the hill and and pull their their game cameras and they see these pictures of these bulls on their summer range well a lot of the bulls that they were showing pictures of were i mean obviously under yard not under but younger age class bulls so they're not going to be giants they're not you know big mature bulls they're two and a half three and a half year old bulls but a lot of those bulls seem to be their antlers even though they're full velvet they were starting to get they were pointed out there all the all the points were starting to get sharp they were all tan. They weren't, you know, dark, you know, that, that real dark bulbous, you know, where they, that dark coloration when they're really putting on length of inches. So those bulls that people were showing pictures of, younger age class bulls, largely the growth was done. And that's part of the reason why I thought we were going to have early velvet stripping. But, yeah, I'm going to be very curious to see what you see on the optics. Because you, at least... You have the ability to, to take pictures of bulls that, that live there so you know that's the same bull, that's the same bull, and you can monitor over time and see exactly did they throw two inches on each antler or did he, did they throw six inches on each time? Yeah. Or, sorry, not time, not antler, but time. You know, did they grow two inches per time or, did, or at least on the tops or did they throw another six to nine inches on? That would be interesting. Yeah, and it's my understanding that there's a period of time that they're really growing a lot of bone, and then there's a time when they start to harden up. But up until that point, it's kind of like, you know, once they really start growing, you know, that that middle of July, end of July, maybe even into August here in Colorado, they are pouring it on quick. So it'll be interesting to see from some of the photos that I have, like the end of July, the same bull let's see what he actually did in a you know two and a half three week period till the next time i got to get the photo so it'll be cool to check that out uh chris we have a load of questions from listeners uh podcast listeners and instagram followers that i want to dive into before we do that um i want to applaud you on launching on your elk module on the row hunting resources elk module uh, you do some lengthy podcast episodes, and for the listeners that haven't heard it, it's not necessarily podcasts like the form 
like my podcast or other podcasts, a lot of it is, Chris, you just basically take a topic and then you just dive in on, on a bunny trail talking about it. Talk yeah. a little bit about that and, and how it's going and the feedback that you've gotten from it. Well, so far the, the it's going well. I you know I've obviously I need to keep cranking out some new ones, but uh, the so far the the feedback has been phenomenal. And and for everybody, anybody, and everybody that's that's listened and and has enjoyed it and let me know, I, I appreciate you guys and gals you know diving into it with me because it's not for everybody. Like you said, it, it's more of a long form discussion. So on the elk module, if if anybody's already a subscriber and they've gone through or past, let's just say past subscriber and you haven't seen the new stuff. So in the past, you'll know that I, I'll, I'll do a video on a you know, topic, on vocalizations or behavior or whatever, and they're kind of a more structured video, and, and they may be 30 minutes, they may be a you know, total hour or whatever, or a series, I'll bust them up, but they're a little bit more structured. Uh, but people had asked quite a... Uh, not only did people want more of a kind of a podcast-esque type of uh, format, but it invariably seemed like people would, you know, I'd, I'd cover a topic and then people would have more questions about the topic. And then the, by the time I got done answering questions, it could have just been addressed in a more long form discussion. And so that's kind of what I've been doing there. So yeah, some of them are going to be an hour and a half, two and a half, two hours long or whatever. Um, but you're absolutely right. Just here's a topic or here's a one or two topics. And let's just kind of dive head first into it and just explore the topic and see where it goes. And so like you said, so far it's been great feedback, and it's been it for me. It's just so much easier for me to do because just like this podcast, you can. I mean, you called me just a little bit ago. I said, "Yeah, I'll be home at such and such a time." I just walked into the studio, sat down in front of the computer, fired it up, and we just go. And it doesn't right. take a lot of editing. It doesn't take a lot of you know prep time. It just. Here we go. I could be out working, whether it's doing deer stuff. I could be do, mowing the yard. And all of a sudden, a thought pops into my head, and I can go whoop, park the mower, run into the studio, just fire away, and just and and put out good content that uh, folks seem to be enjoying. So yeah, it's going well. Awesome, man. Good for you. That's awesome. Uh, let's let's before we dive into the questions, uh, I I assume that you're headed to Colorado here shortly, um, and and going to catch the opener of Colorado, and then. From there, head on to Arizona. Tell us a little bit about your schedule, any changes to the plans, um, or and or your strategy for what you got right in front of you. Ah, uh, no. Uh, right now, it's just a mad scramble to wrap up stuff here, and then just kind of continue to get ready. But yeah, I've got both uh, family members that I've been hunting with the past couple of years are coming out again. I, you know. Uh, Abe is he still qualifies for a youth license and so in which I the think one that Colorado's the 350 bull yeah yeah so he <laughs> I think that I think this is don't quote me on it but I think this is the last year he is eligible for a youth license and if I remember right it's like a hundred bucks as a non-resident so I told him I said dude you're not going to think about because he wants to do whitetail hunts and go to, you know, he, he, of course, he's young just like we were, and he gets fired up. He's like, oh, I want to go here. I want to go there. I want to hunt that. I want to go hunt that. I'm like, yeah, yeah, pump the brakes because all those other ones you're talking about are expensive as sin. Until, until you, you work your way out of this, Colorado gives you the ability to get a $100 non-resident youth tag. 
you exploit that eight ways from Sunday. So I so they've been coming out these past couple years. Last year he did not kill an elk, but we were stupidly close on another bull that was probably three ten to three twenty. Last minute, I mean, the bull was coming in on a string, and at the last minute, the wind swirled and just blew the whole thing. I was just depressing. But he got, you know, so yeah, the first year he shoots that 356 or whatever, 355, which he, of course, and he's like, oh, this is awesome. You know, but yeah, <laughs> you shoot that as your first bull. Yeah, it is awesome. But then he got a taste of what real elk hunting is like last year. So hopefully, we'll see if we can't get on a couple bulls this year for him and his dad. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, to be honest, I'm tossing. I don't even know. I don't even know. I'm, I'm tossing around the idea since I've only got about a week to hunt with those guys, and then I've got to head to Arizona because I've got two guys that I'm going to be taking down in Unit Nine this year. Just time wise, um, I'm debating whether do I get my own personal elk tag right off the get go, you know, to have in my pocket on opening day, or do I just focus you know save my money initially and just focus on trying to get abe and tom their bulls and see if we can get two bulls down uh in that first week and then if i guess if we do great if if we've got time after that then maybe i'll get a tag but i've got to bail and head straight to arizona get ready for the archery season down there um so my my personal season i i haven't even wrapped my head around what i what i actually want to do because yeah, do would I like to kill an elk? Sure, I would, but it's six hundred dollars, and and if I'm going to focus on Abe and Tom getting theirs, well, geez, oh Pete, that's six hundred bucks. I may not even I may have not, time to do it. Exactly, exactly. By the time we, yeah. ta- you know, it's, let's let's just say we get two elk, and by the time we pack two, uh, we don't have the horses anymore, so or at least not in camp. So if, by the time we kill two elk and pack two elk in one week, geez, oh Pete, there may not even be actually much time. So we'll see, we'll see. But I'm I'm looking forward to a good year. But we'll see if I, I play, I, I jump in the ring for myself or not. I don't know. Well, um, let's just dive into some of these questions. And uh, we've got probably, I don't know, 15 to 20 of them. So some of them will be fairly <laughs> short and some of them we can dive in the weeds and we'll see where it goes here. Um, I appreciate all the people that responded to uh, the Instagram post that I made, and uh, we'll just dive into the questions here. Uh, best advice for an eastern hunter headed to Colorado for late for the late week of archery season? I'll bet you meant last week of archery season. That's what it, it, yeah, for the late week. So he means the last week, I'm sure. That's, yeah, uh, that's my guess. Yep, yep. You want to jump or you want me? Let's hear it. Uh, quite honestly, for any, well, well, not knowing if he's hunted elk before or not, but for most Eastern or East, Eastern, anybody from the Midwest to East, I always tell people, first things first, treat them, you know, go into that hunt thinking turkey hunting rather than deer hunting. A lot of guys that are, are whitetail hunters come out and realize that elk are not whitetails. However, if you're a good turkey hunter, and you come in thinking about turkeys and strategies and calling like turkeys, then you're going to do a little bit better. But no, that last week of September or that last week of season here in Colorado this year should be good, barring any weird weather, you know, issues we have. Um, so 
and the other thing too is that make sure you bring some good clothes and layering because yeah we are a week later than what we were last year which means it pushes it pushes us a little bit later into the fall you end up could depending on where he's hunting i don't know if he's gonna be high country or low country but is he if he's gonna be in the high country we absolutely could end up having snow so chris i get that question as, as well as you do and i know you like that early season because you feel like you can call some of those bulls away they're not herded up with cows um and, and and some would even argue here in colorado that the rut doesn't even really get going until october after the archery season and kind of before the first rifle season um so i know there's that debate uh but you know the late season you know he's gonna face some elk that are bulls that have already herded up cows and have been you know arguably trying to breed cows and, you know, kind of settled into their season as opposed to some of the guys that are going to go out opening weekend where they may get bachelor herds of bulls, you know, bulls that aren't even joined up with cows. Then they'll have one group that, you know, a bull's, you know, loaded up with cows and pushed them around and really going. One basin they'll be bugling, you know, here and there and opening weekend. And then uh, another basin they'll be dead quiet. As far as bugling, wouldn't you think that the uh, end of the season would probably be for hearing bugles and just, you know, getting the experience of feeling like you're elk hunting? Do you feel like the late, the, that last season, last week of the season, you're going to hear more bulls? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, if you want that quintessential, you know, quote-unquote western elk hunt, you know, where you're bulls screaming, bulls with harems and satellite bulls running around, yeah, you start getting mid to late September, and that's when you're going to most likely going to run into the, that situation. Absolutely. But you nailed it. I mean, I, I prefer my personal hunts for the beginning of the season simply because of what you said. I can A lot of times you can find those bulls that, have not, that are not locked down with cows as of yet. Or even if they're with cows, they're still, they still have – that tendency to want to kind of drift off or you can sucker them out a little bit and you can work some bulls and call bulls that might be a lot more difficult later on. So, yeah, no, the, the end of the season, they, the end of September, that he should they should run into some really good bugling. Again, barring any weather. There's been times, you know, you get a low pressure or whatever comes through and it just shuts everything down. Well, it is what it is. But by and large, yeah, you should be able to hear some good bugling and have some good action. And he's, he's saying best advice for an Eastern hunter. You know, one thing I would say is potentially some of the easy spots, quote-unquote, if there is such a thing in Colorado, or some of the spots that are easier to get to, those elk, by chance, might have already been jostled around. Guys might have already shot bulls and been, you know, hiking bulls out. They, you know, you might have to go deeper. But, Chris, on the other hand, do you think there's a chance that, okay, you know, everything's finally got stirred up, satellite bulls are in there, you know, jousting around trying to, you know, get themselves a piece, and maybe some of those easier-to-get-to spots just come alive where maybe that first week they're dead? Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I talk about that all the time just in the sheer fact of, you know, in the past it used to be, you know, get a, you know, get more than a mile off the road, and and that's where you'll get into elk. Well, yeah, okay. However, now with the popularity of quote unquote backcountry style hunts, and 
you know, going deep, quote unquote, you actually can run, in, I have numerous times run into more people, more camps, two, three, four miles back in than what you might run into within a mile of the trailhead or a mile of the road. So now there are places, it's not everywhere, there are places where the elk get away from people by literally dropping down and, and you know, staging in some of those areas that, it, it, bottom line, they, the elk are going to go where they get overlooked, where they feel safe. If everybody at the trailhead is, is hiking two, three, four miles in, and no one is hunting a half mile in, uh, that may be where the sanctuary is. So, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, you're going to need to try to figure out when you hit late, you know, late in the September, you're going to have already had a bunch of people in there archery hunting. You're already going to have the muzzleloader hunters that have gone through there. You're already going to have some rifle bear hunters in there probably. Depending on where you are, you may have already had some rifle mule deer hunters in there. So there's a lot of hunting that goes on in September in Colorado. So by the time you get to the last week of archery, they're going to be pushed around and disturbed. The question is, is can you figure out where they are undisturbed? That might be six miles in. That might be 600 yards in. Who knows? It all depends on the area you're hunting, but just keep your eyes and ears peeled and, and just kind of pay attention to your surroundings. You show up at the trailhead and you decide, well, I'm going to hike two miles in and, and go. And as you're going in there, you get you know, a mile and a half, two miles. There's camps everywhere. You go a little bit further, there's camps everywhere. They go a little further, there's more camps everywhere you might just want to turn around and see what's, you know, within a half a mile of the trailhead or down tucked in, you know, next to the highway or tucked in behind some of the housing developments and that type of stuff. All, you know, still hunting the public land and not trespassing on private. But you, the elk are smart and they figure out where they're safe. And with the popularity of backcountry hunting, sometimes you can find those bulls a lot closer than what you thought. You know, people have talked about it all the time, and, and Aaron and I talked about it, is people walking by bulls, walking past elk to go find elk. Well, don't walk past elk. Just figure out where they are. Go at them. If they're only 300 yards from the trailhead, bully for you. That's an easier pack than three miles in. That's, by, that's for sure. Yeah, Definitely. Next question from White Jacob. He says, AZ Unit 22 North, late archery, November 15th through 28th. Will calling be totally ineffective by that time? My answer would be that unit in general gets quite a bit of pressure. I would not lean heavily on calling. Um, you know, potentially you could get in a situation where, you know, you've got, you know, a second, third, um, you know, cycling cow or something where you've got an area and you might hear some bugling or what have you, but I would be focused on that 22 North uh, late archery in Arizona. I would be focused on water. I would be focused on trying to glass in those north and northeast facing slopes in that thick brush. Uh, typically after the rut, those bulls will basically try and go and hide. They'll try and get in some thick areas. They'll try and get area where they have access to food, uh, basically food, shelter, and water. Uh, cover, and uh, they're typically in nasty, nasty spots. So, I mean, I would not plan on having a uh, calling be effective, but certainly if you're sitting a tree stand on, on water and you want to, you know, you're up in a tree and you want to just do some cow calling, you want to do some, you know, small little bugling, um, and, and you're not, like, picky on what you're going to shoot, 
very likely you could attract a bull uh, to come in and, you know, you could get a younger bull to come in uh, to that. So, Chris, thoughts? Yeah, no, you didn't. Nope, you summed it up perfect. Okay. Next question is how to pull a oh, – this is from Nutty underscore Duddy. <laughs> I love the name. How to pull a herd <laughs> bull from his cows and what time of day is best to try? How to pull a herd bull from his cows and what time of day is best to try? Chris? Well, there uh, you've got two general tactics. One is bugling, uh, using bull vocalizations, and one is using cow vocalizations. Bull vocalizations, that is the sexy, that is the popular strategy these days. You hear people talking all the time about challenge bugling or bull calling cows bugles or worrying them or what you know, getting in close, ripping a bugle at them, threatening them, trying to make that bull, you know, quote unquote, come in looking for a fight, so to speak. That is covered eight ways from Sunday. Can it be successful? Yes, it can. Absolutely, it can. Uh, but it is, it is animal specific so some bulls are lovers some are fighters so you just have to understand a you need to get in if you're going to do that tactic you need to get in close you need to cover the distance you have to be in close to make them you've got to trigger that put up or shut up type of uh, fight or flight response where they have no choice but to respond and either separate them you know get in between them and their cows and cut you off or actually come in looking for a fight the reality is there are going to be some bulls that hear you bugle and, and challenge them like that, quote-unquote challenge them like that, and that are just going to round up as many, as many cows as they can go, and they're just going to push them, and they're just going to push themselves out either into thicker cover to where they can lose you, or sometimes, depending on where you're hunting, I've seen them push them right out into the open, especially out in the alpine or out in a burn. They'll push them right out in the open to where that bull can turn around and then just sit there and watch and try to gauge, you know, what that threat is. So bugling and challenging them absolutely can work. I'm not saying it doesn't, but there's plenty of resources out there that talk about that. The other one that I personally, personally like is following them in the morning to wherever they're going to bed, try to get that wind right, and then as they are getting ready to bed down, slip in close and use just especially assembly muse trying to sit there and just sound like a cow or two off in the periphery of where those cows are getting ready to bed and just make sure that bull knows that you're there and see if you can't once those cows just start getting ready to bed down a lot of times those bulls will go make inventory and they are much easier just to kind of you're not going to pull them far but even if you just need to pull them 80 to 100 yards, just to pull them out on the periphery of their cow group just to come see if they can't round you up. And that's what I like doing. Mid, mid to late morning on the edge of those bedding areas, if the wind is right, that's what I like doing. Yeah, and I'll throw on top of that, and um, I'm not going to make a lot of friends with this one, but uh, I'm just going to tell you right off the bat, I'm going to minimize my bugling as much as possible. Um, I have heard more people screw up their hunt by bugling than people that have made their hunt by bugling. I have heard 
Correct. You know, there there are some very very good buglers out there that I could I would say they can bugle their to their heart's content and they'll have plenty of success. My my experience, especially in Arizona, guiding for twenty years in the public elk woods, the more bugling that you do, the worse your chances of calling any bull then are. Now, again. The best buglers in the world, yeah, they can bugle a lot more than the guy that, you know, picks his call up two days before the season starts and starts firing off a bugle. And, yeah, is it, you know, it's on Instagram, it's on Facebook, it's on the videos, it's on YouTube to fire out a nasty bugle and get this bull charging in at you. I'm just going to tell you my experience on public land, it doesn't happen that often. But what I think happens more often than not is someone that can make a relatively decent sound with a cow call that is able to sneak in close to that herd like Chris is talking about and be able to coax a big herd bull away from his cows. I think, I think the percentage, and if we polled every hunter across the western U.S., I'll bet you it would show that cow calling calls in more herd bulls than bugling. Now, you know, there will be some that argue with me, but I'm just telling you, if you are not a good bugler and your plan is to just be firing off bugles, expect the response that Chris described where they're going to gather their cows and they're going to push them away from you. Jay, can I interject real quick? Yep. Okay. What you just said, you know, and people need to understand this, you guiding 20-plus years in Arizona, the if I'm, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but from my knowledge of you, you're talking 20 years in some of the best units in Arizona. Arizona, with, and, and the, the relevant point behind that is you are in units that have a lot of mature bulls, bulls. Yeah. that have a lot of competition. So if you were ever thinking that, oh man, you know, this is what these bulls are going to do. They're going to come in looking for a fight, and, they, and, and I'm going to challenge them, and they're going to, have to, they're going to have to face me. Of all the places that should happen, that would, should happen down there. But that's the thing. is Exactly. What you said is uh, more often than not, those bulls, more bulls on the landscape are lovers and not fighters. And, I, yes, there's a plenty of time when people can bugle and, quote-unquote, challenge that bull. And then you see people say, oh, he, you know, look at that bull. Oh, he came looking, charging and looking for a fight. And then they show the video, and it's a two-and-a-half-year-old bull with his head up, his ears up, his neck. I mean, I'm like, that bull, it, uh, he's not charging in on anybody. What he heard is he heard a bunch of bugling, and because he's a young bull, he still has that safety blanket. He wants to be with a group, and he's curious. And so, yeah, he's you know, the same thing. And I talk about this, too, in, in the, one of the recent videos I did, you know, if you're looking at some of these YouTube videos, they've got the, the multiple person setup, you know, or, or situation where they've got a shooter out front with a cameraman and then one or two callers or five callers in the background. Well, the callers are 100 yards away, and on video, the shooter is trying to get a shot at a hundred or, excuse me, at, at, a, at a bull, that, a two and a half or three and a half year old bull that's, you know, 40, 50 yards away. Well, shoot, that bull's 150 yards from the caller. And he's coming That's in cautious. That's not a call in. That, That's not a call okay, in. That, exactly. So 
be careful of what you interpret when you watch these things. What people say and what you are watching the elk do are completely two different things. And the other thing, too, is people have to realize, okay, and, and we have both said it, is that tactic successful at times? It absolutely is. It is a legitimate tactic. Yes, it is. However, I talk all the time about the, my proverbial valley of the ten bulls. Okay? A lot of the people that are out there that lean heavy on bugling strategies, they absolutely expressly state they are looking for a particular experience. And they will go across that landscape until they find the one bull that wants to scream in their face. My okay, if that is what this person, you know, to the person who's writing this question, you're after, go for it. Exactly. If you want a certain experience, then yes, what you're doing is you're going out across that landscape looking for the bull that wants to play your game. However. I, and Jay, I, I, I'm going to put, I, you're probably in the same boat I am. I look at it and I say, in this valley of, of, there's elk here, in this valley there's 10 bulls. I'm not looking for a particular experience per se. I want to just go into that valley and I want to have the tool set where I'm going to go in and I'm going to work all 10 of those bulls. And I'm going to be picky and I'm going to choose which bull I want, but I have the ability to go in there and work all 10 of those bulls. However, those 10 bulls need to be worked. So that's the difference in the strategies that you hear Jay and I talk about versus what others are. If you're looking for a particular experience, okay, then maybe go that more aggressive style tactic. But if you're looking at wanting to fill a tag efficiently, then possibly consider a different strategy. That's all I'll say. <laughs> <laughs> Good stuff. Okay. Next question is favorite type of call to use and why? That uh, comes from Anthony Bruno underscore. I'll tackle this one first. Um, Chris, I will tell you that, you know, you, I've already said I like cow calling. Uh, my favorite external read calls are the um, ones by Steve Chapel. Uh, Steve, at I, I think it's Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls is is the uh, name of the actual company that makes his calls. Uh, the call is called a matriarch and a trophy wife. So there's two different external read calls. They're very similar, um, but I carry the trophy wife and the matriarch around my neck. Uh, those are the external calls I like. And then I've been testing a bunch of diaphragms as I do every year. I have no ties to any companies. Um, I'll use whatever call I think is the best call. And I have to say, I love my man, Jason Phelps. He's just such an incredibly nice guy. He has built a company that has gained a reputation and popularity that is phenomenal and my hat's off to him and I'm just going to say right now that I've been messing with his diaphragms now for the last well I mean last couple of years but for the last 30 days I've been blowing different calls of his and I'm going to say he's done a phenomenal job with those calls I almost hate to say it Chris 
and, and Jason, if you're listening, uh, you know where my heart is when I when I say this. But the, he's done such a good job popular, um, making his calls uh, popular, if you will, and getting the exposure out there. I almost hate to say that the Phelps diaphragms are really, really good just because it seems so trendy. Everybody's, you know, piping them on Instagram yeah. and this, that, and the other. Yeah. I kind of like, I tend to have a, I tend to be the guy that likes to, you know, go for the underdog and use stuff just like not be trendy. But I'm telling you, um, these amp calls uh, that he's been making, the ones I've been blowing the last 30 days, I think it's some of the best batch of calls that he's ever made. Um, I owe nothing to him. He owes nothing to me. Um, and again, like I said, it, I hate being, you know, I, if I had a choice between using a trendy call and a call that, you know, is not trendy, I'm going to use the not trendy gear any time of the week. But I'm telling you, these, these diaphragms, I mean, it doesn't matter what color I've been blowing, they all sound pretty darn good. Um, the pink, the maverick, uh, the, the green, the orange, uh, those are kind of all the colors that I found have been working the best for me. I don't bugle much. Uh, he did, uh, I do have a Phelps bugle tube here, actually a big one and a small one, and I think they both have their purpose, but I'm just not much of a bugler. So that's my answer. Yeah, no, I, you, I mean, goodness gracious, I, there's not much more for me to add because I'm, I'm the same way. Steve Chappell's Matriarch is my go-to, followed up by the Trophy Wife. There is no, in my opinion, well, I, let me let me take a step back. Okay, so I, and I think you're the same way. I prefer a wide read, okay? I, I prefer an open read style call because I've always said this. I think you can do almost every cow vocalization that can be made with an open read style call, and it allows you to get really nasally. It allows you to put a lot of realism into them. Um, for me, my preference I do like an open read style call that has a wide read. I think it gives me yeah, a wide mylar read because it, for me, it gives me the ability to have more control. Therefore, if you're looking at wide reads, my opinion, Steve Chappell's calls are, I mean, they are, they are light years beyond everybody else's, in my opinion. They're just, period, end of discussion, they're the best. Um, now, I do make sure I always carry a Primos Hyperlip double with the tone converter because that will give me a different sound signature, uh, especially for just the assembly muse uh, that you can't mimic really. It, you can use other calls, but the Primos Hyperlip double with the tone converter does that vocalization just get just perfectly. So I'll have those three, and then, yeah, I mean... You know, it's one of those things where you say, well, I, I, I was a Phelps guy before, you know, Phelps became popular. I don't know about that, but, you know, I've been using Phelps mouth diaphragms for the past couple of years now. And, uh, you know, I'm not, I've never been, a, I, I need to try his AMP series. I've never, the Primo's palette plates and, you know, Steve Chappell's mouth diaphragms with the, with the original flat palette plate. I like yep. But anything else over that read, I've just not, for my personal uh, taste, I've just never been a, a fan of. So I'm just the typical kind of like the flat read style guy. And, yeah, the I think however Jason is doing it, whether it's the frame size, whether it's the way he stretches it, whether it's the tape, I don't care. 
Phelps, mouth diaphragms just click with me to the point where <laughs> these past couple, well, these past couple years, I've had Jason kind of modify a couple for me specifically, and I just got off. The, I just got done chatting with those guys, and then they're going to send me some more. I mean, they, they're a they're a great company. B he makes great calls, but the thing, and that I hope, and you nailed it. His company, the company is growing, especially now they got Dirk on there, and the 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 you know marketing has just gone through the roof. I hope that with their growth, we do not see a detraction from quality. I really hope we don't see that. I hope it just continues to rocket forward, because one of the things that I've always liked about it is you know, and I'm not trying to, I'm not putting. You know, I'm not trying to commit Jason to anything, but in the past, if someone had a request or, or you know, say, hey, you know, what about this or can I try this or whatever, there's many times when Jason would be like, yeah, let me try to work something up for you. And, I mean, he would have one-on-one -on -one customer service and try to build you the best thing that worked for you. And, I mean, geez, oh, Pete, tell me a company that can do that, you know? So, no, they've, they've done a great, great job, and that's those are the, the – the calls that I use, and, and like you said, for, for as far as the Bugle or Bugle tube, if you like mouth diaphragms, then there are so many on the market. I would just say, depending on which mouth diaphragm you're using, just play with different tubes to see how the back pressure works for you and how, you know, what kind of, what tube gives you the most versatility. But for those people that want an external reed style Bugle, I still like the Primos Blue Reed system. But I will always advocate if you're going to go with the external reed, the Primos blue reed, the silicone reeds, choose a full-size bugle tube so that gives you a little bit more, you have the ability for a little bit more realism, but that size of the tube will help that reed break a little bit and you'll get more versatility out of that external reed. Calling, uh, this is from Danny Dot Ender, calling solo early season. Should I bother bugling if they're into cow calls? So if they're in, the part that gets me in the question is if they're into cow calls. Well, if you know they're into cow calls, then no, don't bugle. If, if yeah. they're answering and they're coming in and you're having success, I, I personally wouldn't bugle. If you're a great bugler and, you know, they're coming into cow calls and you're bugling and you're like, well, I've thrown my best bugles out there and I've thrown my best cow calls and cow calls are working better, I'd roll the cow calls. Now, like Chris has talked about and what you can see on his elk module when he's talking about all the different elk vocalizations and, like, he talks about having that quiver or having, you know, that toolbox, um, you know, there's always a time that, a, you know, one simple bugle with some cow calls is going to call in a, you know, the perfect situation is going to call that bull in. So, you know, I would stick with what's working, um, and I would use the bugle to locate to get them to bugle. Then I would move in as close as I can, not calling at all, trying to get in tight, using my eyes, my ears, uh, listening and, and, and watching as I'm moving forward, try and slip in there close, and then just sweet talk them. That's, that's what I would recommend. Yeah, no, yeah, exactly. Give him what he wants. I mean, if, if you if you know he wants cow calls, just feed him what he wants. You know, I say all the time, I will call as much as I have to, but I will net or I will call as much as I need to, but I will never call any more than I have to. It's just a tool to to help fill a tag. So, if they're if they're eating on cow vocalizations, just feed it to them and shoot one. Uh, question from Nate 
HNSN, would you stick to calf calls and loft mews during the mid-August archery hunt? Chris? Ooh, mid-August, so like Utah guys. Must yeah. Be. Yeah, no, that's not a bad strategy. I would still throw in some assembly moves, yeah, but that's not a bad strategy. It, now, did he say in there that he's after bulls, or is he just after? Doesn't say. Well, and quite honest, and we don't know if he's over the counter because it doesn't. Utah have a bunch of those spike only hunts. General, yeah, they have some. Yeah, general. So, so talk a little bit about that. Well, that's the that's the thing is if you're going out there on a general hunt and if you've got if you're after either cows, if you've got a cow tag. Or if you've got a general tag and you're going after spike, understand a spike is a younger animal, and they have that they do have that um, behavioral need for the safety blanket of those cow calf groups. So you're darn right. I'm going to lean heavy on the calf vocalizations and lost music. You know, just especially for getting a response. But don't overlook the assembly mew, especially if you do get a response. Just lean on that assembly mew, saying I'm, I want you to come to me. You're absolutely. I'm going to lean heavy on that. Because you are not playing testosterone—excuse me—you are not playing to testosterone at that point in the season. Ninety-nine percent of what you're playing to is base-level communication, and at that point, it's going to be mostly cow-calf vocalizations, and that the calf vocalizations, lost muse, and assembly muse are going to be just that—that's literally the base-level communication. So that's what I'm going to lean heavy on. Absolutely. Even for mature bulls, even say, let's say you have a limited entry. Let's say you do have a limited entry tag, and you're going after the biggest mature bull that's in the unit. If we're talking mid-August, I'm still going to do the same thing. Most of the time, though, it's going to be a little bit more difficult to locate them. I mean, if you can glass them and figure out where they are and slip in close, great. You know, and if you, you have to try to get them to vocalize so you can identify where they are, that may be a little bit more challenging. But, no, even the biggest mature bulls, I'm still going to do the same thing because at that time, again, you're, again, you're still not playing to testosterone. You had, Jay, you had that tag several years ago. What did you do? I didn't show up till September first. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I got no interest. I got no interest in playing with elk that uh, you know are one in velvet, two uh, not acting like elk, and you know I, I, I wanted to chase bugling elk, so I didn't even show up till September first, and I think I hunted the last sixteen days or seventeen days of the season. That's um, fair enough. So, yeah. Uh, Chris, before we get to more questions here, I want to thank the sponsors of the podcast. I want to thank GoHunt.com Insider. Uh, it is the best Western hunting resource out there for draw odds, harvest statistics. Right now they're doing a 30-day free trial. Go to GoHunt.com forward slash Jay Scott. also want to thank GoHunt, uh, the gear shop. My friend Cody Nelson of 20-plus years is the optics manager there. If you guys have any optics needs at all, if you want to buy binoculars, spotting scopes, rifle scopes, tripods, anything to do with glassing or optics, give Cody a call at 702-847-8747. That's extension 2, or you can send him an email directly at optics at gohunt.com. Now, he's going to be answering those calls himself and answering those emails. Make sure you say that Jay sent you. Also, make sure that you tell him you want to be entered into the August drawing. They're giving away a $1,000 Go Hunt gift, uh, Gear Shop gift card. And all you got to do is buy something either online at GoHunt.com or through Cody uh, and just use the JSO promo code, and you're going to get a have a chance to win a $1,000 uh, 
gift cards. So uh, if you spend $12, you get 12 entries. If you spend $12,000, you get 12,000 uh, entries. So it's dollar for dollar entry. I want to thank Gohan for their sponsorship. I want to thank Kuyu Ultralight Hunting. That's the gear that I wear on all my hunts. Uh, you can go to KUIU.com to find out more. Thanks to Kuyu. Uh, Phonescope.com. Go to use the JSCOT19 promo code when you're at Phonescope.com. It's going to save you 10%. That's the digiscoping device that I use for all the photos and videos. And then Onyx Maps. Uh, OnyxMaps.com. Use the JSCOT19 promo code. You're going to get a 20% discount. Uh, Onyx Maps is awesome to use to delineate between public and private lands. You can flip back and forth between topo and aerial. Uh, you can download stuff from Google Earth right into the app. Uh, you can export, import, export in and out of the app very easily. You can also use the breadcrumb feature. So use the JSCOT19 promo code. Uh, Chris, I've got a question here that is wanting Chris to explain uh, let's see, Southwest Colorado bow hunter. Can you have Chris explain the doorway principle? <laughs> uh, yeah. How much time do we have? Um, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I guess to, to put it short, um, always remember that you are in their house. So if we're calling elk, we are in their house. All right. It, it, and if someone, just like you in your house, if, if someone is calling to you from your back bedroom, you know, we understand our house. We know where sounds come from. We're not going to go in, you know, we're not going to go to the garage looking for them, right, we're, unless we're trying to avoid them, right? So if someone calls to us from a, a back bedroom, we're going to go to the back bedroom. But if you think about how we engage our house and people in our house, most of the time, you know, if you think about it, we're going to kind of cover that 80 to 90% of the distance, and we're going to get to the doorway of that back bedroom. And even if we just pause for a millisecond, a lot of times we're going to pause and try to make visual eye contact, you know, eye contact or at least visual contact with whoever's doing the communicating with us just so we can see where they are and what they, and maybe we can pick up on what they want. Elk are no different. So, Always remember, they know where you are, okay? They know, I mean, within a, if you're calling and they're responding, they, are, they know where you are from within a couple square feet of where you're calling from. So if you're down next to that meadow, you're down next to, in their kitchen. If you're on that main travel corridor, that's their hallway. If you're near their bedding area, that's, that's their bedroom, okay? They know where you are. So if they're responding and they're coming across that landscape, yeah, they're going to do exactly what we do and they're going to probably pause at the very earliest spot where they should be able to see where we're calling from. And depending on the habitat type that you're in, maybe that's you know, dark timber going into open timber, or maybe that's a, a patch of pine going into aspens, or, or maybe it's alpine to the inside edge of the tree line or something like that. I mean, anywhere those habitat types where... There's that, that, that edge where they should be able to walk through one type and they're getting close to wherever it is that you're calling from and they should be able to stop and see. If you pay attention to where they should want to see you and pay attention to that first, make sure you get set up there or get, up, get set up within your effective yardage of that particular spot, you're going to be a heck of a lot better 
at at capitalize. I and mean, there's a lot of people that call in a lot of elk, but how many times do you hear people say, "Oh, it, it hung up out of range." Well, no, he did not hang up out of range. He hung up in the doorway. He stopped at the very first place that he should be able to see you. You just picked the wrong setup. Not to be, you know, brutally honest, but that's to be brutally honest, that's what it is. You picked the wrong spot on the map, and he just stopped where his doorway is, and he's like, all right, I should be able to see from where you're calling from. So make sure when you're picking your setups, find those spots on the terrain that should be the place where he should be able to stop and look in and make sure you can cover that with your whatever weapon of choice that you have. And make sure the doorway, preferably, you could be a little. You could be a little bit downwind of the doorway too. Yeah, if awesome. if if you need to if you need to cut. Yeah, I I kind of laughed about that last time we were talking because yeah, if you if you call like I do, and you know, kind of go through some of the principles that I talk about with the see you first principle and all the other stuff. If you are realistic, and especially if you're not using an aggressive strategy, especially a bugling strategy, but if, if you're calling low-key, you're using it, or what I call a targeted strategy, using those lost views and, and assembly views, if you set up within the doorway, 99% of the time they're going to walk straight to you, and they're not going to worry about swinging around downwind because there's nothing for them to tip them off to think that there's some reason that they need to swing in for safety. Now, if you all of a sudden, well, like, for, let's, let's tie in that previous question. If that, the guy that was saying, okay, he, the elk are responding to cow calls, should I throw a bugle in there? Well, if, he's, if that bull is responding to cow calls and he's coming, and then all of a sudden you get excited, you throw a bull vocalization in there, well, now you just change the dynamic on that landscape to where another bull coming into that situation it may be in that bull's best interest to now swing downwind because he wants to make sure he doesn't get his butt whooped. However, if, you, if, that, if those animals are responding to cow-calling strategies and you are using a very tar or a passive or a targeted strategy where you're not building up, quote-unquote, that excitement, most of the time they have no reason to suspect that there's anything wrong so they will just march themselves straight into that doorway. It's only when we do something a little off, a little different, a little squirrely to change the dynamic that then they go, hmm, maybe I just play it safe and, and swing and put my nose downwind. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, if you can be downwind of the doorway, go for it. But if you kind of take your time and, and call strategically, a lot of times you don't need to worry about it, my opinion. Got a question here, Andrew dot Prosser dot nine two seven seven. Do you change call type bull slash cow and intensity based on age class of bulls, Chris? I don't. I don't. I I only change my calls based on what that bull has given me. You know the response that bull has given me. But no, I don't. I would say if you're saying, do you change? The call type bull cow, you know, if you if you sound like the if you're bugling and you sound like the biggest baddest bull in the woods, you're not probably going to call in a lot of two year old three year old bulls. That's kind of, I think you could use a two three year old little little bugle and call in most bulls 
rather than the biggest, baddest bull of the woods call is typically not going to call in a younger bull. Why? Because he doesn't want to get his butt kicked. Thoughts on that, Chris? Yeah, yeah, keep going. Yeah, you're with, you're with me on that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the thing is if you're, it, most of the time, though, I, again, you know, like we talked about before, most of the time I am not going to a bull uh, an aggressive, now don't get me wrong, I will use bull vocalizations, but I'm not usually going to an aggressive bull vocalization strategy right off the bat. So if, if I've gone through my cow calling strategies and then I've gone into using, you know, whether it's contact bugles, whether it's using, you know, just subtle bull vocalizations and I need to bump up into more of an aggressive strategy, okay, then maybe that's when I'll, I'll switch things up. But that's, I've gone through a lot of gyrations on different tactics and different strategies up until that point. And that's why I guess you, you're right. I mean, that, that was a good clarification. I was kind of coming at it from a standpoint of, you know, if, I, if I'm working an animal, I, I won't, I, I really don't. I'm, I'm using base level communication and I'm going to use the same calls for whoever I'm using it. But if I need to step up to more of an aggressive strategy, okay, maybe I will. Yeah. That's what I like on the elk module that you have all the strategies in action. You, ha you, you go through videos where you describe and you show each one of those situations. And every situation is different, but it's, I like how you yeah. let the time yeah. lapse, let the video roll, and you can actually see how long it actually takes in some that, circumstances. And that, that, and that you just nailed it right there. And that's a great point. Because, yes, you're right. I think a lot of people end up causing problems for themselves only because they, the human, get impatient. The, the strategy, the, their calling strategy that they were employing was working. And the animal they're calling to was interested. But man, there are plenty of times where those animals will just take their time. And I think a lot of us get impatient and then, you know, you know they're there, they're, they're interested, 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 or else they go quiet for a little bit and then the person is like, oh, I got to do something different. I'm losing it. Well, no, he's just standing there, especially if you're leaning heavy on an aggressive strategy, they're expecting to see movement of other elk. That's just by the default of what an aggressive strategy is going to be. It is going to be portraying movement. And so a lot of times those elk are going to be right there, right on the outside of where you, I mean, they just need to come a little bit further. They're just waiting to see movement. Again, that's why I don't jump into aggressive strategy right off the bat. But just let the setup work. If he's there, and you know he's there, and he's showing interest, just let the setup work. Don't change things too quickly. Don't get up and move aggressively too quickly. Because I see a lot of people, a lot of times, that's when they bust them. That's when they blow them out. So, yeah, no, let the setup work. That's a great point. It can oftentimes take a lot longer than what you think. Got a question. Uh, tips for the doorway principle in thick oak brush, kneel versus stand in thick oak brush. I would say never, 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 never kneel in oak brush. You have to stand because of the way, the way that that brush is. Unless you're trying to call them in and literally shoot them, you know, like at point blank range and you're trying to shoot under the oak brush. Chris, your thoughts? Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I agree 100%. And quite honestly, I never kneel. I don't care what terrain I'm in. I don't kneel. And if any, it, the people that are talking about the, you know, asking about the doorway, I'm guessing they're subscribers. 
geez, oh, Pete, go watch the strategies and action videos where I'm down in Arizona standing in the middle of the open pines and the nearest tree is 10 steps away. I'm standing in the middle of nowhere letting my camo work. So no, I always stand. Absolutely. You need that flexibility. Next question comes from ZachBuddy24. Does rutting time behavior differ from unit to unit in Arizona? I'd say absolutely yes. I think a lot of it has to do with pressure. And you're going to notice in some of the more premium units where there's less tags, um, you're going to probably notice more bugling, more, more you know, rutting behavior and, and, you know, that type of thing, where in units where there's tons and tons of people, you're probably going to witness uh, bulls that, you know, might bugle really hard until it gets light, and then they're going to be running to their beds. Yes, they're still probably bugling. Uh, whereas in a unit with not a lot of tags or, you know, a high-quality unit with a high bull-to-cow ratio, you might have them out feeding more, you might have them out bugling more, interacting with each other. So, um, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily think that the rutting or, you know, actual breeding is a different time frame. I think it's more of a function of just people pressure. Chris? Yeah, no, I agree with all of that that you said. The only thing is is whether or not the environmental conditions affect um, cow cycling. So, you know, you may be in a situation where one part of the state or uh, some units are just brutally dry and, and all the animals are stressed, and then you go up in elevation a little bit, and it's wet, and it's lush, and it's great, and, and all the elk are cycling just like they're supposed to. So that, that can adjust things, but no, you're absolutely right. Everything else that you said, I'm right on the money. Another question from Landon Boomsma. It says, what elevation would you find elk in peak rut? I don't think you can pin it to any elevation. No. I mean, we have elk from anywhere from five to 13,000 feet, and I've seen rutting elk in every elevation that you can, you know, out there. Um, I don't think you can pinpoint any specific location. You know, and it depends on what state you're in, what unit you're in, you know, general unit, limited entry unit. So I, elevation would never be anything that I would be looking at as, you know, I'm going to go here because it's this elevation and I might find more running elk. Correct. says, I'm hunting Colorado high country, seeing them above tree line every morning and evening, should I try and set up where they enter and exit or follow them into the timber during the day? Chris? Yes. <laughs> Which one? <laughs> yeah, if you, if you know where they're coming and going, if you know their ingress and egress points and you can get the wind right, yeah, that's exactly what you want to do. I mean, that's what the whole point of sitting up there behind glass and pattering them is about. And then but if don't that does not work, <laughs> what's that? Yeah, exactly. But if, and if, 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 yeah, go ahead, go ahead. I, I mean, if you see where they're coming in and going out and you can have a good strategy to an ambush point and you get in there and it just doesn't quite happen, but you know that every night they're coming in and going out the same place, I wouldn't chase them into the timber. I'd bat back out, wait for the evening hunt, try another attack on them where they come in. If you start boogering them, that's when you're probably going to have to dive into the trees with them and, you know, go hand-to-hand -hand combat. I would tell you that chasing elk in timber and being behind elk trying to move, 
you know, trying to come from behind, so to speak, is a very, very hard task, especially in the dark timber of, you know, Colorado and Utah and Wyoming and Montana. Yeah, and, and because it, he said he's going to be up in the high country, so a lot of times the reason why those elk are going to bed in a certain spot is because the wind is just absolutely nightmarishly unpredictable, and that's what gives them the advantage and why they're bedding there. So, no, I'm with you. If you if you know where those elk are coming and going, and you can get the wind right, just just give it some time. Now, like you said, if you're down to the wire, and you're you've got you know you're you're looking at the end of the last day or two of your hunt, and you got to try to quote unquote make something happen. Okay, well then yeah, maybe go down in there. Or in one of those weird days where all of a sudden the wind is just perfectly consistent, and they're down there just going nuts, and you think you can get in close with the wind in your favor and not booger them. Okay, go for it. But man, if they are predictable, oh yeah, yeah. Set up and snipe them. This is from C33 Willie. I'm seeing tons of elk sign around nine five to 10,000 feet in the drainage, but no elk during daylight. Is this a travel corridor? When I go down first. Yeah, it's, I, I don't know where he is. I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I know the elevation, but I don't know what the what the habitat looks like around it. Is there high country around? Is there? I don't know what the habitat looks like. Yeah, it so, very well could yeah. be a travel corridor, but yeah, I mean, can you glass it? Can you see? I mean, he's at nine five to ten. It's probably thick timber. You know, he's probably, you know, I don't know if he's seen it on a trail. I would tell him that if he's seen a ton of elk sign. I would probably stay out of there until the season, leave them be. And if they, you know, once the season starts, they should start vocalizing more and you might have a really good honey hole. The worst thing you want to do is go, oh, I see a bunch of elk sign. I'm not seeing them during the day. Uh, let's go muck around in there. You might screw the whole area up. Um, you know, I think a yeah. lot of things could change over the next couple of weeks when they start vocalizing. Uh, I, would, I wouldn't go. I wouldn't go busting in there very much. Agreed. Uh, calling tips for rifle elk hunt in the Gila, October 19th to the 24th. Call to locate bulls, if not bugling. Uh, yes, absolutely. I don't think it hurts to throw out some location bugles and see if you can get bulls to answer. I don't think it hurts to throw out some, you know, lost muse, like Chris would say, or or throw out, you know, kind of some, even some excited cow calling and just see if you can get a response. Um, you've got a, a rifle in your hand uh, for that hunt, so you're looking at, you know, all you have to do is get within rifle range or know where a bull's at. So, yeah, I would, I would try some of that. And depending on the amount of success and response you get, uh, you know, that would dictate how much I'm actually going to use that strategy. Uh, the Gila's is you know pretty thick so glassing sometimes can be tough i know those dates of the 19th to the 24th uh that's starting to get pretty late but you might catch some second season cycling anything chris dash no absolutely i agree 100 percent on that yep especially if you don't care what kind of bull it is i mean at that time you got you depending on what the weather's doing you can absolutely have those animals starting to group back up for winter and so you're going to have some of some of those, especially the younger age class bulls, wanting to find where those cow calf groups are and wanting to get groups back up with a group. So calling absolutely can work. Yep. 
Okay, question here from all things outdoors underscore Utah. How do you think the lack of monsoon will affect the elk bugling in Arizona this year? We talked a little bit about that um, early in this podcast. I think that uh, from everything I'm hearing, that the grass is green, everything looks pretty good, although it's drying out. I think, you know, from everything I've heard from all my friends there, that the all the cows look fat and sassy. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if we have a really good, intense bugling uh, season and lots of action. I think one of the things is the full moon uh, during that opening weekend, I think, is going to be probably expect a, you know, lights out opening day. And it wouldn't surprise me if, you know, late, you know, mid Saturday afternoon, Sunday, you get a little bit of a lull from the pressure and from the the moon activity, and then I think towards the end of the last, you know, the, the second week of archery season, I think they're probably going to come uncorked, and it's going to be, they're going to scream really hard through the entire early rifle season as well. Uh, let's see. In your experience, what percentage of elk calling setups results in an animal coming in? let you tackle that one, Chris. Oh, they need to qualify on what type of calling. Yeah, I mean, seriously. Now, granted, I mean, the, the general consensus is, you know, I, I won't say general consensus, but you hear a lot of people talk about, oh, but, you know, less than 10% or blah, blah, Hmm, I don't know about that. I think That's he's asking you... about your personal experience calling when you set up, I think is what he's asking. When you set up on a bull, what's the chances of them coming in? Ooh. Uh, to be honest, better than 50%. Yeah, um, I was going to say the same thing. Yeah, most, most of the time, if, 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 if I'm getting set up to call, I... Yeah, very rarely. I mean, I, I do cold call, and I do just throw stuff out there and just see what happens. But if, if I'm what I consider setting up and, and calling, it's it's better than 50%, yeah. Yeah, and I would even throw in a lot of times I don't even start calling till I'm, you know, 60, 70, 80, 90 yards away. So I try and get as close as I can. So I only have to pull them 20 or 30 yards to be in bow range. So you know, when you're starting a calling strategy and, you know, if you're on the elk module, Chris goes through all of the strategies and action and such, and he talks about, you know, don't start a strategy out at 250 yards and expect them to just come racing to you. I'm the same way. If I hear an elk bugling and I want to see what it is, I'm going to sneak in as close as I can and not make a peep and get in, you know, if I see him, and I can keep moving and keep sneaking and keep sneaking, I'm going to sneak into bow range and never make a peep. But if there's a yeah. point where I, I can't go any further and I have to stop and he's 80 yards and I start calling to him, I can tell you the closer that I am to that elk, the, the better my percentage of chance of, of – if I can get 50 or 60 yards from him, the likelihood of him being 20 or 30 yards is I'd say 70 or 80 or 90%. Yeah, yeah. And what are your thoughts? Right. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right now. And I know for a fact somebody that's listening here is like, well, shoot, if I get 50 to 60 yards, I'm shooting that thing. Okay, well, it all depends on the, the terrain and habitat that you're in. Sometimes you don't. Um, and, and there are times if in really open habitats, maybe I will have to start my calling sequences 
you know, 150, 200, 250 yards out. It, if I if I'm going to be out there at distance and the elk is re- is responding to what I'm giving them, the farther away I'm set up, the longer I will let that setup work. Now, obviously, just like what you said, Jay, if if all of a sudden, but let's let's okay, let's take your let's take your unit nine Arizona. You've got those burn areas, and all of a sudden you're you're getting you're working in on a bull that's bugling. And you realize, you come over the hill and all of a sudden realize, bam, there's a burn in front of you, okay? And he, but he's interested, interested, interested. Okay, you may be calling to him and he might be out there a distance, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say, if that bull swings around the end and gets himself into the timber that gives you an opportunity to make up distance, you're not just going to stay there. You're going to cover ground and you're going to try to always improve your positioning. I'm going to do the exact same thing if I can. But if I can't, if, if, the, if the terrain or the habitat is such to where I am a little bit more exposed and I know I've got the setup right, now, again, I'm very picky on my setups and where, the, where I think the doorway uh, where it is. If I've got that setup right and I think I've got a good doorway, uh, again, like we talked about just a little while ago, let the setup work. I might give it an hour or two. You know, last year um, I shadowed that one bull and finally, I mean, I finally called the bull in and he stood, you know, 12 steps from me. I don't, I don't remember what, it was like nine or 12 steps from me. It took four hours. It took four hours of, of calling, repositioning, calling, repositioning, calling, repositioning, shadowing, repositioning, calling, repositioning. It was still the same bull, still the same calling effort. It just took four hours of me working him to finally get everything right to where, point he stepped out, he followed the cow out, and he just stood right in my back pocket. So you just got to let those setups work. My opinion. Got a question here from uh, Galeb uh, underscore Sipovo. Utah rifle season, early October high country, focus more on food sources or sanctuary place. Um, Galeb, I'm going to try and, if, if it's a rifle hunt early October, so they'll probably still be bugling, I'm going to focus more on congregation areas, areas where the elk are going to get together and rut around. Uh, a lot of times that's going to be a meadow, that's going to be a burn, that's going to be somewhere where they can feed at night, and then they're going to disperse from there. Um, I'm going to be glassing the shade in the afternoon. A lot of times those elk will go find shade and bed up. Um, I would get where I can glass and see those shade pockets. Um, and, you know, depending on exactly where you're at, uh, you know, food sources, as is, is wet as it is around and as much winter moisture, I mean, they're going to have grass in the trees. They're going to have feed everywhere, so they may be all spread out. Any any add to that, Chris? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the only thing that it, the, everything's dead on the money. The only caveat that I would put in that, the only um, I guess additional consideration would be, depending on the unit, how much pressure has that unit got? I mean, if if it's a, if it's just an absolute pressured area, then I I'm going to agree with what you just said just a second ago about there's going to be vegetation in those those sanctuary areas, and they very well may not need to come out. So if it's a heavily pressured unit 
and it's been you know hunted hard, then probably those sanctuary areas are going to be where those elk are going to pile into. If it's an area that does not see an excessive amount of pressure, then yeah, absolutely. I'm going to be going, I'm going to try, I want to identify where those sanctuary areas are. But absolutely, I'm going to be focusing on where they're going to be congregating and feeding and, and carrying on. So, yeah. Chris, that uh, concludes our questions. I really appreciate you taking your time today and your schedule of getting all your food plots and getting your tree stands and everything set up for whitetails. Uh, uh, just to look forward to seeing your success this uh, fall, and I always appreciate having you on the podcast for sure. I uh, want to give you a chance to let the listeners know where they can hear more about you and, and follow along and, and what have you. So will you do that at this point? Yeah, yeah, no, I appreciate you having me on. It's always a good good time and good conversation. So, yeah, as always, people can just go Roe Hunting Resources, R-O-E Hunting Resources, whether it's on social media, YouTube, or the website. And as always, anybody that's new that wants to subscribe and dive into the elk module, just type in J. Scott Outdoors, one word, in the uh, promo code, discount code section there, and it'll knock 20% off. So the one thing that has come up that people that have asked, you know, if, given the fact that we're so stinking close to season, is it really even worth, you know, diving in and trying? Well, yeah, obviously I'm biased, but, yeah, I, there's if you look in that module, and this is I've, I've had to tell people this a couple times now, and I'm going to probably make this a little bit more clear, there is a fast-track option in there to, you know, just, Jump in, go through and understand the behavior, you know, watch the behavior stuff, and then maybe go in and tackle the lost muse, the assembly muse, and that, and the contact bugles. Just get the, the base communication stuff under your belt, and then just lean on the rest of it throughout the season as you need. But, yeah, there's still time for you to pick up some really, really good stuff in there that I think can help. Yeah, again, we're talking about efficiency in calling in your setups and, and just making the most of every setup that you engage in. So there still is time for those people to think, wow, it's just too close. I'll, I'll worry about it next year. Well, you can, but don't feel intimidated just because we're staring down the barrel of the season. There's a lot that well, you can pick up on now. You know, it's a thousand dollars too. I mean, so you know, it may, <laughs> yeah, it's so, it's so expensive. What is it, Chris? What's the cost? Well, you know, I, I it ranges just without the probe. It ranges from like twenty five bucks to fifty bucks to seventy five bucks. You know, it just yeah, you're depends on what you want. That's but I mean, per second, people, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So no, I mean, it is. It's kind of funny. You know, there's a lot of people that are like, oh well. You know, is that the promo code? It's like, no, that's what the standard is. The promo codes knock you off even more than that. So, yeah, you can spend twenty bucks or fifty bucks or forty bucks or whatever, and and have it for three months or a year or whatever you want. I mean, it, it, we try to make it cost. Uh, we we want to make it economical for everybody. I don't care if you have a family of twelve and you're, you know, strapped for cash or whether you know you get this fly fish all summer on the rivers and. and Enjoy. <laughs> that was a jab, wasn't it? That was a jab. <laughs> I look at your life, I'm like, Son of a, I don't even know how to spell fishing at this point right now. I don't even know where my fishing stuff is. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing I would add, too, and the people that are just listening to this episode for the first time, they hear elk module, they hear row hunting resources. Guys, this is, you know, 40, 50, 60 hours of videos of actual elk, Chris calling elk, 
elk actually making each of the vocalizations, Chris taking the time to explain each of the vocalizations, the strategies and actions where he's actually has the camera on, he's talking to the camera, explaining how he's setting up, where he's setting up, why he's setting up, why he's making that call, what call the elk is making. He's, he's, he's very descriptive in all of the scenarios, and so it's just an incredible module uh, of information and resource there. So, Chris, uh, just keep up the great work. Appreciate you spending the time with us, and uh, we'll be chatting at you down the road. And if I don't talk to you, uh, be safe and uh, try and catch up with me mid-season so we can see how things are going. Absolutely. Thank you, Jay. That's very generous of you, and then we will definitely stay in touch, even if it's just from texting pictures back and forth. All right, buddy. Sounds good. God bless. Take care. All right. You too. Bye.